This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, if you do have your Bible, let's open it to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, and this is it. This is the last sermon in this chapter. In the best chapter in the Bible. Honestly, this, this has kind of crept up on me. I think it was this, this combination of realizing that we started the series while we were still online only as a church. We did a few of these indoors. And now I can't even believe I'm saying this, but the summer is winding down. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter is back in school such as it were from home, I suppose, but she's back in school. And so the summer is winding down. So this just kind of crept up on me that all of a sudden we're here. This is the last one in Romans chapter eight. And this is one of the biggest sections. I didn't actually count, but we may be doing more verses today than we've done in any other of these messages. Nine verses today. A couple of weeks ago, we just did one verse. And so this kind of crept up on me as it might have on some of you. And Romans 8 has been so good. It has felt to me, getting to study this and to to preach it, that God in his gracious providence had given us this for exactly such a time as we've gone through. I really felt like as this, God has been so good to us as a church, this is exactly what we've needed. And and that continues this morning. We're going to finish strong this morning. It actually wraps up in similar fashion to where Romans 8 began. Verse 1 says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and verse 39 says that nothing can separate us from Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. Let's read Romans 8, 31 to 39. We'll pray, and then we'll be into these things. So read along with me, follow along with me in your Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What, what good verses. Let's pray. But I feel like it's enough just to simply read these verses, say amen, and let's be on our way to consider them today. So I pray that the, the following things are, are, are helpful. I, I do confess, 
I wonder if I can even do justice to these words. But God, we also know that you work through the preaching of your word. I pray that you will set them on fire in our hearts, that you will instruct us and encourage us, and that you will imprint right on our hearts that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Bless the time. Help us, we pray. Amen. Well, if you're feeling, reading this, that there is a crescendo coming out of Romans 28 and 29 and 30, and now we have the Apostle Paul just, just kind of letting it go. He's letting it loose. He can't hold in his amazement or his worship any longer. If that's the way you're feeling about Romans 8, you're, you're feeling exactly the right way. That's what's happening here. In one sense, I, I know that we're reading what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. It's for their edification. But in another sense, I feel like we're just reading Paul's worship. It's like we're almost reading a, a journal entry that he just wrote as he thought on the beauties and the grace and, and the wonder that is the, the power and the love of God. And he's just included it for us here. Have you ever had that kind of experience in worship? where you thought on the Lord and his mercy and his love just became in your view so great that your joy in him sort of exploded, poured from your lips, poured from your pen, like your heart couldn't contain it anymore. That's what we're reading. The apostle Paul just can't contain it anymore. He started out by saying there's no condemnation in Christ. That where once there was a law of death, there's a freedom of life. He moved on to say that, that God has made us alive to the spirit and through the spirit we commune with God in more profound and meaningful and joy-filled, eternally satisfying ways than we could have ever thought possible. And then he comes to, to Romans 8 where he says that because of all that that he's already said in the beginning part of Romans 8, that we can have such a confidence in God that no matter what happens, God is using it for our good. Verses 29 and, and 30 tell us that all God is doing is moving us, is crafting us, all, all that he's working out to, to, to mold us into the ultimately who we were created to be. And in, in, in verse 31, we just get now the conclusion of all that. What do you even say to all of Romans 8? How do you wrap that up? And he wraps it up by saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's for you, what, 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 what's even the point of asking the question, who's against me? Paul asks four main questions here. They're mostly rhetorical. I'm not sure you could even do justice to them in answering them. But what I want to do is I just want to try to begin to discuss why is he asking these questions? They are rhetorical, but how might we answer them a little bit? And then I want to do that as we work our way toward the conclusion, <coughs> excuse me, the conclusion that Paul wants us to see. Nothing can separate us from God. That's where we go. If we're in him, nothing separates us. There's nothing that you've done. 
There's no thought that you've ever had. And there's nothing that you will ever do that if you are in Christ means you've repented of your sin and you believe in the person and work of Jesus to be saved. There's nothing that will separate you from Jesus Christ and the eternal life that's yours forever. That's where Paul ends up. It's really the only place he could end up. It's the best chapter in the Bible. It has to end here because it's the best news in all the world, in all the universe. So four main questions. The first, if God is for us, who can be against us? The question isn't as much who is against us. There are a lot of things that are against us. Often the world is against Christians. Our own sinful desires wage war within us. They're against us. The devil is against us, accusing us, trying to distract us, trying to depress us. But what Paul asks is with God for us, who can be against us? What he means is it doesn't matter who or what is against you, because when you are with God any opposition can't stand up against him. Remember what we just said a few verses ago in Romans 8, 28, that all things are used for good when God's for you. So even when there are evil things, evil powers, evil rulers against you, it's not just that God can turn them and use those things for a little bit of good. It's actually that those evil things God takes and he bends them. Not just to bring good from them, but to serve good. He uses evil in his providence to serve good. There's something I, I keep saying in these sermons from Romans, and I need to say it again this morning. These things do not apply only to the really great Christians. They're not only for the varsity team Christians. There's no such thing. There are sinners whom Christ has redeemed and there is no other category. We're all the same kind of Christians. Ones who are hopeless apart from Christ and now ones who have every hope in Christ. So these things, these encouragements, these promises, Romans 8, these are for you if you love God. If that's you, if your hope is the gospel, then God is for you. And because of that, it doesn't really matter who or what is against you. He's for you, so who can be against you? Second question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This question means that God has already shown us the fullest extent of his love. And if he's willing to go that far, we can be absolutely assured that he's not going to pull back. If someone asks, how do you know that God loves you? This should be your answer. This is your testimony. People might try to say things like, well, 
you know, God has always protected me. I know he's for me because he's always protected me or, or God's always provided for me. I've, I've never gone hungry or went through a really difficult time and I prayed and God brought me peace. And, and those are all good answers. Those are all fine things. But according to Paul, those are secondary answers. Without something greater, without something more significant, there isn't really much assurance that God won't stop providing for you or protecting you. But when we ask, how do you know that God loves you? You might be asking something like, well, is there a limit to God's love? What, what, what's the, how far will he go? And the answer is that Paul gives, there is no limit. We don't know that God loves us because he protects us or provides for us or because he, he gives us peace. We know that God loves us because the most precious thing in the world to him was given to us. And so if he gave the most precious thing, it only follows logically and sequentially that he's going to give us all the other good things we need too. He'll protect, he'll provide. You're never going to go without. When you go through difficult times, he will be there for you. And you know that because the thing that's most precious to him because the thing that costs him everything, that's what he freely gave you. How do you know that God loves you? He gave you Jesus. He gave you his son. God didn't give you his own son only to pull back on you and leave you stranded when it comes to smaller things. Parents, can you imagine giving over a child? Of course you can't. If God could do that, he's not going to go, well, I gave you my son, but I'm not going to give you something easier or smaller or less significant than that. No, he's going, he showed you he's going to go all the way. Just think of it this way, small analogy. Let's just say a friend or a relative, bought, you, you lend them things, and every time they borrow something, they either lose it or they break it or they forget to give it back and it sort of becomes theirs. Eventually, you're going to probably stop lending them things, as you should. And you're going to have good reason to do that. But what Paul is saying, that's not the way it works with God. Time and time again, people, folks, you and me, have broken the trust that he's given us. We've abused the grace that he extends We've taken his forgiveness for granted. Yet time and time again, he continues to give. God doesn't stop giving himself. He gives and he gives and he gives because he loves you. And so how will he not give you in the smaller things when he's already given you everything? If you're wondering how to do this, how do I live like this? How do I love God like this? It's all about seeing Jesus like God sees him. What the apostle Paul is getting at here is that God's proof that he won't leave us and that he'll always stay with us is in the cost of his decision to do that. That he assures us of love and the, most, the way he does that is he gives us his most precious thing. And the trouble is we so rarely treat the gift of God and our relationship with Jesus the way that God treats us and his relationship to us. So this is the uttermost 
of what God could possibly give to us. But so often to us, our relationship with Jesus is more of an afterthought. He's what we do or he's where we spend our time when we have a few extra minutes or when we, fully, or when we really, really need something. But that's not how God sees Jesus. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have had a fellowship and an intimacy and a communion together for all time that's more intimate, that's closer than anything that we could know. Yet God was willing to give that over. And so how do you live the Jesus life? How do you love God? You begin to see God the way that Jesus does. Philippians 3, another letter from Paul. He writes that he would gladly give up everything else. And he thinks of everything else as rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Jesus. Is that how you think? Would you gladly give up every bit of comfort or well, list goes on, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus? If you wonder how do we do these things, it's to do it that way. Say, God, I want to love you so much that everything else seems like garbage in comparison to you. Third, third question. Who should bring any charge against God's elect? And there's kind of two questions wrapped up in this one. It said, it is God who justifies. Similar question then, who is to condemn? So let's take these both together. So both sides of this question have already been answered earlier in the chapter. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Rhetorically, the answer is no one. Paul says it's God who justifies. What he means by that is that God who is, de- is it's, it's God who has declared us innocent and his judgment is final. You have been justified. Folks, you will not be justified one day if you live well. You will not be justified if you give enough money. You will not be justified if you are a kind enough person or if you do enough charity. No, you are justified. Your account has been paid or your debt has been paid. Your account is clear. And it says that that happened not because of works that you've done or things that you've done, but because Jesus has died and been raised. Your justification is a work in mercy of God. It's not dependent on you. It has nothing to do with you. It's outside of you. God has done it. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the only grounds for justification. And they are more sure than anything else that this world has to offer because they come from beyond this world. They're powers other than this world. They're powers over this world. Everything this world offers that tries to vindicate you, that tries to persuade you, that tries to say this is the way to justify yourself, they'll eventually fail you and leave you because they're from this world. And this world doesn't last. Jesus defeated death on the cross. He gives life in the resurrection forever. And we know that that's true because it's wisdom and it's power and it's grace, and it's mercy, and it's sure, because it comes from outside of this world. It comes from God and his word and his purpose that lasts forever. So no one brings a charge against God's elect because the the charge can't stand. 
In verse 26 of Romans 8, Paul said that the Spirit intercedes for us from within. And now in verse 34, he says Jesus intercedes for us from above. Folks, our, our faith is not based on the teachings of a dead man. We have a living Savior. That's what separates Christianity from the rest of the religious movements in the world. We don't just follow old sayings of wisdom. We worship and have interceding for us with God a living Savior. In heaven, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father telling him what you and I need. He's bringing the desires of our hearts up with God and he's ensuring that no guilty charge even gets a hearing with God. So why can't anybody bring a charge against God's elect? Because he's the highest judge. He cannot be overruled. There is not a higher court to appeal to. And he's already rendered his verdict. Not guilty. Not guilty. Who can condemn reminds us of the very first verse of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anyone who believes that Jesus was raised from the dead is no longer under condemnation. And folks, that doesn't mean that we don't have difficulty. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that hard times don't befall us. It doesn't mean that we won't sometimes be condemned, uh, that we won't be compelled to feel condemned. Both the world and the devil want us to feel condemned because it distracts us from the mercy and grace of God. Ephesians 2 calls the devil the ruler of this world. The world wants Christians to feel guilty. They want, it wants us to feel like we're missing out on pleasure, to doubt our salvation. It wants us to feel out of place. The devil wants you to feel miserable sometimes. It's his last ditch effort to draw you away from Christ. But because Jesus died in your place and he broke death when he rose again, you are not condemned. And that should give you great joy and hope. So when you feel like the world condemns you, when your own thoughts condemn you, preach that gospel to yourself and say, no, I am not condemned because I am in Christ Jesus. And he is raised, he's been raised from death and now he sits at the right hand of the father and he's interceding for me. And worship, worship folks. Final question, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Here, Paul just gives us options we would consider. If you're experiencing distress or famine, or you were so poor that you couldn't clothe yourself, or you're being persecuted, or there's violence being done among you, or you're being, or just asking, have I been separated from God? He quotes Psalm 44. So sometimes the world can feel like a slaughterhouse. It's just one cut after another. And it's true. Isn't it true that sometimes life can feel this way? 
the place we live, we're unlikely to experience real persecution. We don't worry about famine. And honestly, most of our problem isn't that we don't have enough clothes, that we have too many clothes. We open our closet and we're like, I got too many clothes in here. I got to give some of this away or I got to get rid of this. But we still wonder through our suffering in the midst of hardship, we may wonder, has God left me? You may wonder because of an employment situation or because of an illness or something happening with one of your children or in your family, or you've prayed about something for a long, long time. And you feel like God hasn't done what you want him to do. So you wonder if God is even with me. And this is where the crescendo comes to its highest pitch because that's the question that every single person will find commonality with others at asking at some point in your life, is God even with me in this? So we reach the fever pitch where Paul's joy and his worship and his hope for what we know are fixated on the one thing that brings hope and assurance. He says, no, in all things, all things, folks, all things, everything. If it's hardship in the family, if it's distress over what the future is going to bring, if it's illness, if whatever it is, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Christ. And he then gives us this list. He just starts out, in, in, in this list, and he, and he gives us hope at the end of it. He says it's, it's neither death nor anything that happens in life that'll separate us from the love of God. He gives more possibilities, spiritual battles, things you can see, things you can't see, things high or low. And if there was ever anything else that you felt like that wasn't even on the list or anything else, he just kind of covers that in all creation. If you've got anything, you go, well, my thing's not on the list. Well, if it's in creation, which it is, it's on the list. None of that can possibly separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so whatever you might have in your mind right now, you say, but Adam, I, I don't know. You don't know my thing. You don't know what I'm facing. How can you know? How can you be sure that God is with me? Because if you're in Christ, he has said he will be forever and in all circumstances. There's nothing you can envision or imagine that will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. It's easy to feel like a victim. You can feel like you've had hard circumstances. Maybe sometimes they've just befallen you. Other times it's you've made a bad decision and you're experiencing the consequences, it might even seem unbearable. But whatever the case, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that we are not victims. We're not under, and we have not been befallen by the oppressions of this world. We are not victims, we are victors. Promised an unsurpassed inheritance in the world to come. Folks, through Christ who wins, we win. Through Christ, who is the victor, we are vindicated. And nothing can change that. So what do we do because of Romans 8? What do we do with this? The surest confidence in the most glorious future 
is the answer to what do you do with Romans 8? You have the surest confidence in the most glorious future. The whole world can feel like it's against you. You can feel like your life is a mess. You can wonder what comes next. You can wonder what the future holds, but Romans 8 gives you two great promises. Two great promises. No matter what, you are not condemned, and no matter what, you cannot be separated from God. Again, just one more time, hear those words. No matter what, you are not condemned. No matter what, you cannot be separated from God. Christian, you might suffer and die today. Even so, you are not condemned and God holds you fast. Everything you know now might be different tomorrow. Even while everything around us might feel like it's crumbling, God will be with you. He is there. He does not condemn you. He has bought you and he will keep you secure. And the deposit on that guarantee is his son, Jesus, died for you, raised to life, sitting in heaven at the right hand, interceding for you, promised to one day come again and make you his in heaven forever. Romans 8 is the best chapter in the Bible. It has the best promises in the Bible. The response is worship. The response is assurance. And the response is joy. May you worship God in the full assurance of salvation through his son, of eternal life, and may that well up within you joy unending. I hope you'll come back to this chapter often. This has been such a gift. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and powerful God. May we be a church that knows your strength, that feels your tenderness, and that rests forever in your love. May you well up within us a joy unending. May it overflow in the worship and praise of your name. And may we always rest secure that we are in Christ. No condemnation, no separation. Praise be to your great name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.